0: Okay. Know. Well, hello, friends. Andy C. Luter here. And let me welcome you to another edition of the Weekly Clergy Roundtable. I'm so delighted that you're here. I'm joined by a panel of clerics literally from around the country. And uh, this is literally eight days, I believe, prior to eight or seven days prior to the election here in the United States. Now, before we jump into our conversation, and we certainly have so much to talk about Let me uh, pause and invite our panelists to say hello to you. Let's move to North Carolina to my co-convener and co-moderator from Raleigh.
1: Thank you, Bishop Luther. Uh, Good morning to everyone, grace and peace to you. I'm Archbishop Dennis Garford in Raleigh, North Carolina, Global Conference of Bishops and Living in Favor Global Network. Glad to be here this morning.
0: Thank you, Archbishop. Happy to have you as always. Since we're there in North Carolina, Let's just uh, move just a little bit. Let's stay in Tahio Country, <laughs> a little bit east. Little bit I'm east. Archbishop. I, Anthony I wasn't sure. Slater. I wasn't sure my geography, and I don't want anybody to call me out on it.
1: <laughs> I
2: am Archbishop Anthony Slade. I'm the senior pastor of Tahila Church Ministry, which is in the home of uh, the cathedral, and I'm also the uh, presiding prelate of uh, Tahila International Fellowship. God bless. Thank you,
3: Archbishop. Let's bounce to Buffalo. Grace and peace to one and all. I'm Bishop Jeffrey Bonds, pastor of the Love Alive Fellowship. I've been absent the last couple of weeks, so I'm honored to be here with my colleagues to be in fellowship. And we're honored to uh, have you back and having returned. And
0: uh, let me just pause and publicly and officially wish you a happy birthday on today. We want the audience oh. to know that uh, we are celebrating your birthday today, Bishop. God bless you. God <laughs> Thank bless you so you. much. Yes. Now let's move out to the Midwest. I believe they call that Hawkeye Country.
4: Yes. We greet you in divine love this morning. I bring you greetings from Cornelia Ministry for Gospel Baptist Church. My name is Helen Sincer, and we are a people connected to God and people connected to each other. And it's about 20-some degrees here today, so... <laughs>
0: we're trying to warm up oh my goodness oh my goodness all (laughs) righty. well again i'm andy c luter of the hollywood full gospel baptist cathedral in amityville new york and the queen's ministry of new york city friends obviously and apparently uh the item that claims our attention today is the close proximity in which we stand to the national elections here in the united states and uh, certainly, as uh, representatives of 501c3s and nonprofit organizations, uh, we are restrained from endorsing particular candidates. However, we are certainly at liberty to encourage the circle of influence, the circles of influence that we abide in to participate in the electoral process and to remind people that it is our civic responsibility to vote. And so, uh, while we will not necessarily, as uh, members of a 501 C3 tell you who to vote for, we certainly will recommend and encourage you to participate in the electoral process by voting. Now as individual citizens, that is uh, uh, an item that is another item all altogether. And so I want to go to uh, Archbishop Goffin. And have him begin our discussion. Archbishop, you are an accountant, uh, not an attorney. And so this is not legal advice or legal counsel. I wanna make that clear. But from an accounting point of view, one that specializes in 501c3s and nonprofit organizations, can you uh, kind of refresh our memory and go over what the restraints are, what the restrictions are in terms of our 501c3 status as it relates? To the political world.
1: Um, yes, I will, Bishop. But did we did we mention uh, Bishop Hines?
0: Oh Lord, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, please, please. I'm sorry. Please forgive okay. me, Bishop. The freshest, the the freshest voice and face that we have as part of our roundtable. Let's go to Richmond, Virginia.
5: <laughs> Peace and grace be multiplied. Glad to be with you all. I bring you greetings from Richmond, Virginia, where I provide spiritual leadership to Metro Community Ministries and serve on the executive board of Kingdom Builder Fellowship. And so I'm excited about sharing and listening to some great perspectives on this morning as we move into seven days away from our presidential election finality.
0: Thank you, sir. My apologies again, Archbishop. Let's go back to you. And again, this is not legal advice. Uh, we're not. We, we certainly understand and acknowledge that you're not an attorney, and so this is not official legal uh, advice or counsel. Uh, but from a uh, a business perspective and from an accounting perspective, as one who's heavily involved in 501c3s, the nonprofit organizations, uh, what would you tell us? As it relates to our status, our position, and even the restraints that are placed upon us as representatives of the 501c3.
1: Uh, well, Bishop, I do serve as what we call a church consultant. So I have some um, expertise in the area of legal and uh, financial areas in terms of the church. I think that what we focus on is two things um, 1954. Uh, And of course 1986 both of those produced a tax reform act within our government while i'm mentioning that let's let's talk about two things one prior to 1947 and 48 there was always the minister who went before the the government and gave a, a a speech or a sermon as much to talk about the condition of world events or things that was happening in the United States from God's perspective. And then, of course, that role of the minister got uh, demoted to just having prayer in Congress and the Senate. And there was uh, one great uh, minister who did a lot of prayers in Congress. His name was Peter Marshall. Uh, his wife wrote a book about his uh, journey. So those things were very important. But in 1954, of course, with Eisenhower uh, receiving a sermon from a pastor and then putting into the the Constitution or the uh, things that under, in God we trust in, in terms of where we are, but it also produced the tax reform act in which there's a separation of church and, and clergy, uh, church and state rather. So then we have that crystallized in the 1986 tax reform act where there's a separation. In other words, it was supposed to uh, be in a sense that the government would not interfere in the church, but over time it's gotten to mean where the church won't interfere into the government. So it it goes back to the letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Ministerial Alliance in Danville, Connecticut, way back in the 1700s. Then his letter was discovered uh, back in the 1940s and it got misconstrued and determined where he was talking about separation of church and state. His letter referred to the state not interfering into religious affairs. Over time, and the way we interpret it now, we don't have the church interfering into government affairs. So, with that most understanding, most people are approaching the fact that like, like now we should not be doing anything politically as a, as a group with our 501c3, although individuals individually, we can talk about politics in any one that we want. But as a legal organization, we're restricted because of our 501c3 status, which over time has gotten changed and not having the government be involved in the church to having the church not be involved in the government. Uh, I, wanna, I wanna add uh, Bishop Audrey Hines into this because he works with me closely on these nonprofit events. In fact, we have a, com- a summit coming up next month, Bishop Ludo, on November 19th, where we're gonna be talking about uh, these issues of nonprofits. I'm gonna be talking about the church in compliance and um, Bishop Audrey Hines with his group Whitehead and Heinz are also gonna be talking about some issues of nonprofit. So uh, Bishop Heinz, why don't you join me here and share a little
0: bit. By yes. all means,
5: yes. Um, being in the nonprofit public square for 25 plus years, I was, I've established myself as one that does the formation, the structuring and the implementation of public benefit nonprofit. Which is different from our religious uh, designation. Um, we can teach and preach the gospels under religious practices, but when you shift over and you are public service 501c3, then the, they're governed under a different set of guidelines. Those guidelines are we cannot discriminate, and those di- discriminatory um, behaviors that go along with particular groups of people. And so as long as we are open, which I'm glad that the church is a place that is open to we know what our religious beliefs are, but they're personal for us, but the public benefit nonprofit sector is allowing us to serve anyone who is in need. And because of that, we get access to public and private dollars not for promoting our religious beliefs, but promoting our cause to serve the least of these. And so there's a parallel that we can do both. It's not an either or, but it's a both and. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning as we're moving into a, a, a season that the church has to become more vibrant in its deliverables to the community. We have to now start looking at how we're formed and separating when we're proclaiming the gospel and when we're advocating for a particular need of service be it literacy be it reentry services be it a uh, mentoring and after school programming all of those things are public benefit square places and we specialize in forming them the board development thereof, as well as securing public dollars. So this is a great topic because the nonprofit sector is a untapped area for the church that we now have to strongly consider balancing our ministries on the public sector side as well as in the space of religious practice.
0: Mm, Thank you, thank you. Uh, Archbishop Slater, I want to come to you because this whole discussion about the proximity of the church to the state, it has a long and storied history here in these United States. And we readily accept the separation of church and state. But at the outset of this country, before it was even a country during the stage of our history when we were still colonies, uh, the original colonies were actually designed to be destinations for particular religious groups. In Massachusetts, you had the Puritans and the Pilgrims who were parts of the dissident group, uh, the current day Presbyterian group. In Connecticut, in Rhode Island, you had Congregationalists. In uh, New York, you had Dutch reform. In uh, Maryland, you had Roman Catholics. In Virginia, you had Anglicans. And so originally and initially, these colonies, which later on became states, were specific destinations. So if you were part of a particular denomination or a religious group, that determined where in the new world you set your destination. Now, that obviously has been changed over the last two to 300 years with this whole idea of separation in church and state. So Archbishop, talk to us about how do we balance be an advocate for change and justice, and yet not stepping over the line of the separation of church and state.
2: Well, I think that it's a real tightrope situation because we have a responsibility to the people as well. And if as clerics, if we see danger ahead, we're supposed to cry aloud and spare not. Uh, and so in doing such, you gotta remember back in, if we go back to the same history plan that you were saying, that the intent was that the people didn't want to be under the tyranny of the church as the church in England, how they tried to avoid being run by a religious system. And so now that we're in a whole nother place, it seemed like it's happening, or rather it was going to begin to happen and everybody had their menu to go to where they wanted to be of dealing with religious practices. Now, it's almost the same way now uh, but differently because we are so integrated everybody has their own and it brings about a division of the church and so and therefore what I mean by that is that you know we have the different denominations now what I think we're up to like 49 United, I think in the United States I think it was like 49,000 different denominations uh, and that that's become the church dividing well that comes against the teaching of Christ in Ephesians chapter four, you know, that he brought all these these functions, the fivefold as we usually call them, but they we brought these functions together that we may become unified in the faith, but will we ever become unified in the faith? And, and the issue is gonna have to be, the only thing that I think that we're gonna have to do is to go back to what the message was, and that is our worship. We've got to come together in our worship. And so separating churches state, only way we're going to be able to do this as clerics is one, speak truth, speak the gospel. And therefore, we're going to have to be able to walk that tightrope, even in political situations, because a lot of decisions that are made politically are affecting the church at large.
0: Excellent, excellent. Uh, Bishop Bowens, I want to come to you, and I know that this is an area that fascinates you. Uh, can you help us understand, and I've heard you talk about this to some degree at other times in other spaces uh, and in other circumstances, but can you uh, help us understand this subtle difference between religious tolerance and religious freedom? As I, as I mentioned, the original intended design of the original colonies is that, that they would be a destination for very specific religious groups. At some point, those groups who dominated those areas like Massachusetts and Connecticut and Maryland and Virginia and uh, the other colonies uh, had had to wrestle with the reality of whether or not they would even tolerate the presence of religious groups that were not like themselves. And then from there, we get to this whole discussion of religious freedom, which includes the option of not practicing religion at all. I know this is an area that you love to talk about, so let me open the door for you to uh, walk through this with us.
3: Thank you so much, Bishop. Um, I'm certainly enjoying the, the dialogue and the discussion. it certainly uh, have some thoughts that's coming to my mind. Um, historically, it appears that the Uh, the original uh, religious group that came to America first came to Virginia, which was one of the spots that they came to. We know that the Anglicans were there, and um, um, part of Virginia was connected to Maryland, to the best of my recollection. It was it was uh, one whole state, but then um, the Catholics went up into Maryland, as you had forestated, and then up in Massachusetts, um, um, there was uh, other religious groups. And then I think in Pennsylvania, you have the Quakers. So they they went into various locations, um, as you know, regarding separation and so forth and so on. And as Archbishop Slater had said, they had left uh, over in the European countries, um, particular Great Britain. Um, Spain, Portugal, we had quite a few that um, had, uh, were refugees that came to America. And consequently, um, they began to uh, have religious freedom. But at the same time, they did not tolerate um, other religious freedom. So they went and established their own. And so uh, there, was a, there was a gentleman by the name of um, Boulevard, Boulevard um, who was an emperor um, down in uh, Ven- Venezuela. Um, or, or Bolivia. And one of the things that he said about America that was very fascinating um, to me is that he talked about America is ungovernable. It's mm. ungovernable. And it is like a trying to plow through the sea. And, uh, and I look at the history of this country and um, as, uh, once again, Archbishop Slater had mentioned, trying to come together and unify, trying to come together to be one, trying to come together and find common ground. Um, We understand that there is a separation of church and state, and um, we have to walk that fine line. And we thank God for people like Archbishop Goffin and Bishop Hines, who is helping us be able to navigate uh, those terrains. But um, as the body of Christ, we do have to come together and find some type of common ground so that we can continue to do the work of the kingdom.
0: Ah, great, great. Thank you, Bishop. Uh, Bishop Designate Sinster, I want to come to you, and I want you to help us connect some dots because uh, in reality, being uh, treated differently or being treated prejudicially or having a bias against you. your religious beliefs is not too uh removed from being treated differently because of your gender and so there is some synergy here between this whole discussion of religious freedom and the ability to be respected and treated with fairness and with justice despite the differences of your religious outlook and uh perception and being treated differently based upon gender. How do you bring these two items together and help connect the dots for us here?
4: Okay. I have to go back to the word of God because um, I truly believe that when it speaks of restoration, it means in every dimension of your life. And that means, um, you know, male, female, to the original state. And we know before the fall, God created us as one. And as, and when we take on the road to say we're Christians, then there's not that division of male and female, but we know in reality, we do see that. But we as true men and women of God, we do not allow that to hinder us. And so my whole um, part of my ministry has been a ministry of reconciliation and a ministry of restoration. And um, <clears throat> because of that, I stand on and believe that there, even though in our natural eye, we see the difference and it's not only in, um, in the political or natural, it's even in the church. We have to stand and, on what we believe and you may not respect me, but you're gonna respect the office and you're gonna respect me because I demand that respect. Uh, because I get my orders from the Lord. And so I believe that uh, we as men and women of God, we've got to show that restoration and that reconciliation in our everyday life. Um, and I don't know if I'm actually answering everything, but when, I, when Koinonia began, we, we wrote our articles on incorporation to, to be able to be faith-based, to uh, restore people. Uh, those that have been broken to reconcile them back to the, uh, uh, a state where they could be viable instruments in, in the community. Well, I believe that's for everything, male, female, uh, young, old. And so that's what I stand on. Even though there is a, a, um, a clear difference, it does not mean that we have to accept that difference and we don't have to um, let it define who we are.
0: Excellent, excellent. Thank you. Uh, Archbishop Garfin, I want to come back to you. And I can't seem to let this discussion uh, about the contrasting differences between religious tolerance and religious freedom go. And I know that you have a great deal of expertise in this particular area. So unpack this for us and further explain how this country uh, moved, evolved, actually from religious tolerance to religious freedom and how the uh, how the original colonies were very restrictive and, re- and very rejecting of other denominations, other religious groups, even sharing space with other denominations and other groups. And then over time, literally hundreds of years, that position softened uh, to become a bit more tolerant. The, we then get the uh, first and second, or well, primarily the First Great Awakening, George Whitfield begins to carve out a national identity where these colonies begin to see themselves less as colonies and more as the Americas, or, or a national identity that would eventuate in the Declaration of Independence, not as individual religious movements, but as a consolidated group of colonies that were standing unified and together against the tyranny and the authority of the crown and the monarchy back in England. Talk to us, uh, Archbishop, about these subtle differences between religious tolerance and how that eventuated to religious freedom.
1: Well, I think that um, in terms of religious tolerance, I I hear you saying that way, tolerance to religious freedom, but I think it went from freedom to tolerance. Uh, And I say that because the original colonies, those pilgrims who came here, came here for religious freedom. And their whole freedom uh, was to get away from, of course, England, the Quakers, the Puritans came here with that in mind. The whole idea was to come here and be able to practice what they wanted to practice in terms of their Protestant beliefs. And we see this going, and of course, the tyranny of of the Pope of Catholicism. So it was really primarily coming here, a Protestant move initially, and then a whole development of church government, church polity, uh, church of uh, religious practice, church government. Uh, though as the new world opened up this whole new terrain, all the religious groups started making their way here. Uh, even Catholics as Bishop Boyden point out between Virginia and Maryland. And, and then we look at this whole religious tolerance. We had, we've had in this country an issue called moral majority. I don't know if you remember that back in the 80s. We had a group called Moral Majority, which was led by Jerry Forwell. And then we just had the Tea Party movement. And um, the idea is taking us back to the morals that this country first began on. Our whole idea of coming to religious freedom uh, invoked uh, an idea coming from, from the old world where nations uh, actually had a national religion and then coming to this new world where colonies were all in their one camps. It was Baptists to the South, Puritans to the North, Catholics in the middle. And so they all were sitting up their camps. As they start coming together as a nation, they learned to tolerate each other's identities. So we learned to live in this country with other uh, religious groups who were Christians that were not exactly like us. So we learned to have tolerance for those groups as we were coming to our identity. Now in our constitution, the first clause of the Bill of Rights is simply that Congress will make no law respecting an establishment of religion, which means that this nation would not have a national religion. So there is no national religion here in the United States. We have just tolerated other religions that come here. Although 70% of this country is Christian, we have no specifically national religion, but we have a more conscious and that's important. And going back to something that Bishop Slater said, I just don't want that to go out wrong. There aren't 49,000 different religions in the United States. That would be crazy. There may be that many in the world. Uh, and we really don't know the number because everybody don't report their records, and we hear these numbers thrown around, 35,000, 40,000, 45,000, but that would be a global number that would be uh, involved. So we'll make sure that we we establish that. But there are various uh, nationalities of Christians here. But I think that what we need to really focus on is that the colonies got to the point of having religious tolerance and not isolating themselves, hanging people, isolating people, castrating people out because they didn't believe like them. So I think that um, they moved toward this idea of tolerance because this became an open field in the new world. And with the Bill of Rights having this idea that the nation itself would not establish a religion. We have now learned to live and have religious tolerance with other religions that have come here. Taking us back to our political stage today, that's become a problem. As, as everything else has become a problem we're looking at. But most of the problem now stands on whether or not there are things that line up to our biblical principles and things that don't line up to our biblical principles as Christians.
0: Bishop. Thank you. Thank you, Archbishop. Bishop Hines, I'm coming back to you, and I want to I walk this tightrope that Archbishop Slater has described and referenced earlier in our conversation, because. Um, It seems to me that we're in a real dilemma. There is a historic tension between the faith community and the scientific community. Now, as members of the faith community, Bishop Hines, what do we do when we have a national leader who espouses the idea that we're turning the corner the virus is going to disappear. Uh, it's going to go away. People are no longer dying from it, which is obviously a mistruth. And so we're, we're in this dilemma of either ignoring or calling out one of the violations of the biblical covenant, which is honesty and telling the truth, and uh, aligning ourselves with the scientific community that says, no, this is not going away. It is here. Numbers are rising. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. It seems to me that as a cleric, we're caught in the middle. Because on the one hand, we have a national leader who is violating Christian principles by not telling the truth. And then on the other hand, we have a scientific community that we have oftentimes been at odds with, but very well may be giving us the best information in this circumstance, certainly more so than what we're getting from our national leader. How do we balance those two, Bishop Hines? Well, we have to keep our position
5: of speaking truth and standing for truth. So we have to speak that truth and hold our political leader to that standard. So, I'm, I'm going back to what Archbishop Slater was talking about a little earlier. Uh, you know, we're in a not, America is, is, is not a Christian nation. And so, because we are not, I started to think about what you alluded to talking about the moral majority in Falwell's era. Maybe since we went from freedom to tolerance back to freedom. we we pinged back where we originally came from, then I would offer up maybe we need to revisit more of an ecumenical approach to the faith communities to restore truth, to stand with what is our reality, if it be scientific or if it be political. Wherever the truth lies, that's the side of the ecumenical community. And what we may find, it might bring us more together where the Catholic and the Muslim and the Protestants can come together around truth and the truth shall set us free. But we, we gotta take a position now to, to, because all of faith is all about reconciliation. Uh, As as overseer has mentioned, it's about reconciling, reconnecting back to the deity of God, your creator, so we can mobilize ourselves ecumenically around that posture and truth, not fake news, but real news. Then we'll be in a better position then to move forward as a country that's more inclusive
0: without compromise of truth. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Bishop. Uh, Archbishop Slater, we're going to come to you, and it seems that you have stimulated our conversation uh, around this matter. You have been referenced more than once in the recent comments that we've had in this discussion. And I want to thank Archbishop Golfin for um, bringing clarity to some of our original remarks and statements, and I think he's absolutely correct. And he gives me an opportunity to kind of bring a little more clarity to perhaps even what my own intent was. I think Bishop uh, Goffin, Archbishop Goffin is correct that the original uh, momentum, the original um, intent was that there would be freedom of religion. And so these groups that came to America were being brutalized, were being abused in the old world in Europe, and so uh, chasing freedom of religion, they came to the New World. Eventually, they learned to tolerate each other, and so there is the rise of religious tolerance. I perhaps should have added that there is a third leg to this table, and that is freedom from religion. It seems that the history of this country has gone from uh, getting away from those who would force religious groups to act and behave a certain way to tolerating religious groups that are not your own. And then the newer wave is religion, I'm sorry, freedom from religion. And by the time we get to the formation of the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, it seems that the intent is that people have a right not to practice religion at all. So we go from freedom of religion, to religious tolerance, to freedom from religion. Uh, Archbishop Slater, can you expand upon that a little bit?
2: Sure. Um, one of the things I want to make mention, uh, it was definitely misstated what I said earlier, but from my looking up, and it says that there's over 200 distinct Christian denominations in the United States. Mm. That's the point I was trying to bring across in my mind was thinking about something else. But I want to share this. In the process of what you're saying, we're missing some things that, especially as a church, we're talking about morality. And um, my great, one of my, my great instructors, Bishop Golfin, has shared with you, you can't legislate morality. You can't sit there and try to, and even in the church, we want, but that mor- mor- moral fiber has been lost. And it's, we're losing it even in our community which is causing us to act out how do we respond to things, how do we entreat one another, how do we respect, because the respect levels are long going. Then now I'm going back to culture, talking about religion and how we're supposed to carry ourselves. We have leaders who have really muddied the waters. And so when we do business publicly, we don't even have a standard, how do we engage? And so therefore we don't even have a stand in how do we engage with our parents any longer we don't have the example any longer and because of the religion that putting that out it's causing an uprise in a whole state of being in this country and so what do we have to do we we have to return back to learn respect for one another to learn respect for the other side without muddying the waters with lies trying to get our, our point across. And because we've heard enough about it, a lot of the lies, even in this system that we've been watching with the elections coming up, when are we going to get down to the truth? If we go back to the truth, we have to seek the kingdom. And what is the kingdom to us? Because everybody's going to have their own view of the kingdom of God. And if with the kingdom is within us, then that means we have to uh, begin to show some things differently. We have to begin to start infiltrating a system that's broken and bring the truth of the matter to the forefront. But we must be educated, we must be dedicated, and we must be consistent.
0: Ah, ah, great, great, great. Uh, Let me move to uh, Bishop Bowens. Bishop Bowens, what kind of reaction do you have when you uh, park yourself in front of your television set and you hear national leaders claim that uh, the virus is under control, that we're turning the corner, that it's going to go away. And then almost momentarily, uh, that is followed up by um, newscasters who display charts on the screen that show that the numbers are indeed rising. So there's an obvious disconnect between what we're being told and what we're being shown. Who should we believe?
3: I will believe the report of the Lord. (laughs) Uh, I would say um, that's, you know, this uh, scenario, um, Bishop, for me, um, it becomes personal. When you're a pastor and you have to uh, go to the hospital, you have to be with families, you have to bury people one week after another. That's reality that lets you know this thing is real, is hitting all of us personally and professionally. And so consequently, uh, what we hear on television, we have to discern it, decipher it, and dispute it if, if need be. Um, the scientists are saying that the, <clears throat> the pandemic is uh, being um, proliferated throughout the country. Um, science has a history. Science um, has a portfolio. Science has a background that can prove various things are reality. Uh, When you have someone that is um, propagating propaganda, half truths and whole lies, you just have to come to the conclusion that this is so deceptive But it lets us know, you know, even from a theological point of view, um, from my perspective, the antichrist is going to have an easy time. He's going to have an easy time deceiving people. We see deception, people drinking the Kool-Aid, paying attention to false uh, news. It's amazing to me how easily we are led astray. And it doesn't matter now that your family is dying. It doesn't matter now that those who are close to you are sick. It's amazing that we will still, because of nationalistic, because of racism, because of these areas of separation and segregation and religious um, bigotry, all of these things that people are embracing, people would rather believe a lie than to believe the truth. And it just goes back to the scriptures where the Lord that says that men love darkness rather than light.
0: Mm, mm. Indeed, indeed Bishop. Uh, Bishop designate in watching the news here of late, I have taken note that your particular state of Iowa is one of the states that's having one of the most dramatic spikes in terms of return of the virus. It looks as though, at the very least, we are in the midst of a second surge or maybe even a third surge. And so when you see the harsh reality of that, what then becomes your reaction when you hear people say and suggest that we've turned the corner on this and that we're in the process of watching it disappear and go away?
4: I was brought up, like I said, with five brothers, and you call it a pot a pot and a skillet a skillet. A half truth is a lie. And I cannot say that, you know, when when we have men standing up, men and women saying that we turn the corner and we see the results of what's happening in our cities, and that we know that is completely not true. And we should not even You know, we assimilate too much. We want to be a part, but we're in the world, but not of the world. We have to stand on our values. We have to stand on the truth. And that is what's gonna make us free. Um, We have gone through several meetings here in our states trying to mandate uh, mask wearing and different things. And we have a small group that's against that. But it's like I said on last week, we have a small percentage uh, ruling the large uh, population and that needs to stop. And I think that has to go back to, we have to really stand on who we are. We have to know who we get our identity from and we have to stand firm on that um, because at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. And, and we should, if we're gonna value human life, we've got to respect, respect each other and respect um, our values. And if we say, well, we love a person, we've got to learn to listen to them, and then we have to act on what we're hearing. I just truly believe that uh, we're in for, unless we get to some real strong restrictions on, um, whether it's from scientists or from our, we as men and women of God, we've got to stand firm on, on what we believe, and we have to teach our people that. And it's gotta come from us, I believe he didn't leave it, he didn't leave the world in the hands of the scientists or the politicians, but he did leave it in the hands of the church, the body of Christ. And so, we've got to stand on the truth.
0: Thank you, Bishop Designate. Again, I'm Andy C. Luter of the Hollywood Full Gospel Baptist Cathedral in Amityville, New York, and the Queen's Ministry of New York City. I do have some denominational obligations that's claiming my time, so I'm going to turn you back into the hands of uh, Arch. Bishop Dennis Golfin for the remainder of our time today. Uh, Always remember, God loves you, we love you. I look forward to seeing you real soon. Archbishop, we're in your hands, sir.
1: Thank you, Bishop Luther. And this has been a lively discussion with our our board. We're going to wrap this up with a few comments coming from everybody as we close out some discussions that's really not finished, but we kind of hit on a lot of things that's important. Bishop Luther mentioned something interesting. Uh, We talked about the idea that we came here for religious freedom. Um, We went to religious tolerance, and now we have people who are actually against religion altogether. That seems to be the modern generational uh, topic is to not even have religious be involved involved in our life. Uh, The fact that individually as Christians, as the church, um, taking a political stand is always been important to where we were as Christians. Um, I think the history of the Bible showed that we were heavily involved in politics. Going back to Abraham, Joseph, Daniel, uh, we we see a lot where we were politically involved in the issues of the day. And I think we also we we can be of the world. Uh, We can be rather in the world, but not of the world, which means that we can look at where we are in terms of our political uh, position, our religious religion, position, and not compromise biblical principles. And I think that's where we are as individuals, that we want to compromise who we are as Christians. So we need to make a, a, a thing here. I think it's Isaiah 118 says, come, let us reason together. And so I think that in reasoning, as the Lord reasoned with us, we see this idea um, that we come here to, to understand this whole idea of being into our religious freedom in this country, coming to get away from the tyranny uh, of England and of Rome and uh, with Puritans and um, with the idea of the Quakers that came forth and then the congregation moving north, uh, the Baptists moving south. And this whole idea of of, of colonies then becoming tolerant, then of course, um, the point now that we have a nation that hundreds of Religious expressions are being expressed all the time, and we've got thousands, a uh, uh, multitude of thousands of people calling themselves Christians, quote unquote. What does that mean to be a Christian? What does that mean? We define it in various. Um, Uh, denominational settings. Uh, I'm a Methodist Christian, I'm a Baptist Christian, I'm a Pentecostal Christian, I'm an evangelical Christian. Uh, Even the term evangelical is so broad. I remember when we started making all these conversations about evangelicals. When I looked it up, I got so confused on what an evangelical really was because there were these various obnoxious statements and philosophical statements of what an evangelical was. was. I was sort of confused. And so uh, even when we talk about Evangelicals, even when we talk about Pentecostals, there's so many variations that um, everybody has all these variations. And then the obvious question, the philosophical question comes, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, how are we really Christians and how do we express that? And what does that mean? I wanna end with um, just for a few minutes, guys, we only got five minutes, but just give a one minute statement on what you think being a Christian means. Um, Bishop Hines, I'm gonna start with you, then go to Bishop Slater. Bishop uh, Overseer Seamster and then the Bishop born. One behind the other, rapid succession. Just talk about what, what it means to be a Christian to you.
5: A Christian is a born again believer that has a relationship with Jesus Christ, who understands that it's the innocent shedded blood of a risen savior that is the compelling factor that restored us back to our creator. And wherever we are in that relationship of growth, growing to be more like him and the disciplines and the values and the morals that he has prescribed for us to govern ourselves by, we're all in a process. But what we share in common as a Christian is a relationship that we have been interceded for and because of our relationship and acceptance of him and the deity of who he is in our lives, that's the relationship that compels us and sets us apart.
1: Amen. Did you say
2: Basically said it, but here's my statement. And ye shall know my disciples for he have loved one to another. If you don't know the essence of love, you can't possibly be a Christian. Love is what this whole thing is based on.
1: Overseer.
4: As I said earlier, at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. And what comes to mind is uh, we have to learn to respect and honor each other, each person, and regardless of their race, regardless of their gender. And there's a scripture that says in Matthew 25 and four, as, and as much as you did it unto one of these, of the least of them, my brethren, you did it unto me. So as Christians, we, if we have the love of God in us, then we will love and respect each other.
3: Mr. Boyce. Blessings. I heard yesterday uh, a woman um, giving an interview, um, and they were saying that they were conservative Christians. And for whatever reason, that bothered me very deeply. Um, conservative Christians, and then you have liberal Christians. Why can't we just be Christians? What take Bishop Slater's position on this one. Why can't we just be Christians? Why can't we just be people of God? It was at Antioch that they were first called Christians. They weren't called Antioch Christians, they were called Christians. Let's just mm-hmm. be. Christians, let's continue to remain steadfast in the word of the Lord. For he said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word, then you are Christian.
1: I think we have gotten to the point and it's a good point you mentioned, and we may talk a little bit about that next week. The idea of being conservative and um, being liberal. And I think that in terms of our viewpoint of Christianity, we have to look at this whole stage and see where we are in terms of our viewpoint of Christ as Lord, uh, because being a Christian basically means being Christ-like, being like the one, as you said, they were first called Christians in Antioch because people saw that they had the characteristics of one that they were following, and mm-hmm. Bishop Slater mentioned that, that you have love for one another, and I think this whole viewpoint of where we are now, we've so complicated the issue that we have these labels now, liberal and conservative. Liberal who? Because we want to uh, see ourselves as Isaiah 5 and, and 20 says, "Woe unto them that call good evil and evil good. I think that we're in a point now that I'm aroused or, or, or around too much of ourself and, and image. And uh, I preached a message a couple of weeks ago on getting back to our own self-image, getting back to the image. And God took his own selfie when he created man in his image and his likeness. That's the first selfie. So that's what we got to do is get the (laughs) selfie that God has created. So I just want to throw that out to the group. We're going to be talking on election day. And I think we can Mm -hmm. talk more about these religious issues and political issues on election day in the United States. I often mention, I just shared with a group of, of ministers lately. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. There's some big old trees in front of us that we don't like, but let's look at the bigger picture and see what the forest is like. And so we've got to take a look at the forest and see what the landscape is like and get the bigger picture. And let's not just focus on one tree that may be in the way of blocking what we see in terms of the forest. Uh, That's a little wit and wisdom that we can get in. Well, until next week, this has been the Clergy Roundtable. We thank our panel, who who was our regular panel. Thank all of you for being a part. We thank you for listening. Go with God, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.